I hope everybody's doing well. I didn't report a contest last week because there wasn't really many updates. Seems like everything kind of waited until this week. But the good news is there are some updates. There's some positive news as well as some not-so-positive news. So let's go over these last two weeks. So let's start out on a positive note and then just get more depressing as we go on. The positive thing is we are seeing an increase in availability of antibody testing for the coronavirus. The downside is, is that there is some false negatives, false positives associated with these because the FDA is allowing these people, these companies, to make tests and self-report data for accuracy. So what does this mean? Basically, it means that there is an overabundance of tests, which is great, which is exactly what we need. The downside is, is that the large majority of these tests that are antibody-based are not going to be as accurate. We've seen some new antibody tests coming out from a lot of companies that I've never even heard of, and also from some big-name companies. The one thing that we do need to be careful with is that the antibody testing does not prove immunity. It only proves that you had it or that you currently do have it. So I want to talk a little bit about two different terms that you're going to see a lot with these antibody tests. There is sensitivity and there is specificity. These actually break down not only the accuracy of the test in general, but the accuracy of the test when you think about a false positive or false negative. So when we think about sensitivity versus specificity, sensitivity is the measure of the false negative rate, while specificity is the false positive rate. This does come into effect a lot because if we are going to be using antibody tests to prove immunity, or even to track the possibility of immunity, we need to have a test that has a high specificity and as well as a high sensitivity. It's pretty much mutually exclusive because you're getting false negatives or false positives one way or the other. Is it better to have a false negative over false positive? Well, it depends on what you're looking at. The answer is generally across the board going to be no. So what have we learned so far from these antibody tests? In New York, they found that there is a lot more people that have been affected by the coronavirus than we originally thought. This will be helpful for us to see the exact areas that it spread to, as well as determining who didn't get as sick, because that may be helpful in the future. Now, what this doesn't really tell us is a time frame. The testing that we're using now just gives us, well, partial time frame, but the main one that we're using now is the IgG, which is basically saying that you built up antibodies to an infection, your body's done with it, but you still have the antibodies present. The IgM is the current infection and towards the end stage of the infection. Now, these antibody tests are not a replacement for the nasal swab that we've been doing because these don't show up in your body until later in the infection state. The nasal swab is going to show the viral particles pretty much as soon as you get the infection, whereas the antibody testing isn't going to show up for a couple of days afterwards. Your IgM spikes according to multiple different reports from the New England Journal of Medicine, from the World Health Organization, from some independent testing, somewhere around day number four or five, we start to see a slight increase in both the IgG and a very small increase, or the IgM and a very small increase in the IgG. Now, the IgM will spike quicker, and it'll actually taper down towards the end of the infection. Once you're feeling better, you'll still be positive on the IgM as well as the IgG, but once your body's completely clear of the infection, you'll just be positive on the IgG. So this is useful for a couple of reasons. If we ever do determine that people can have immunity to it, 
we will be able to say these people are safe from getting this strain of the coronavirus. The downside is, is that there's going to be a lot of people walking around with a false positive result who feel that they are going to be unaffected by it if something does happen. The other good thing about this is, is the Red Cross is actually doing donations for plasma for people who have tested positive and recovered from the coronavirus. They're actually using the antibodies that the person has created from getting over it on their own to help people that currently have the coronavirus and are hospitalized for it. So this is good information for us, not only because we can treat people, but also because we can see now if you can get a second infection. There's been a lot of news going around about people getting a infection of coronavirus a second time. Right now, as of, is it April 29th? There have been no confirmed cases of this that have been documented with good documentation. What's happening is a lot of these places is they're testing patients once they're feeling better, they're giving a negative result, and then a couple days later they're testing them again and they're getting a positive. With the amount of faulty test kits that are unfortunately circulating around right now, it is entirely possible that they're not clearing the virus and they're getting a false test. The other theory that we have right now for these patients who are testing positive a second time after they've had a negative test result is that there was incorrect swabbing and the person has actually recovered. So the testing that we're doing is a PCR. I've talked about this before. I'm not going to break it down with it too much, but it's a very accurate test. PCR is one of the gold standards for testing for viral particles. So what they're thinking is, is that the test may be picking up a dead viral particle that the person's still shedding. Now, how long is somebody shedding dead viral particles? We don't really know yet. Uh, we haven't really spent a whole lot of time researching that because our main focus has been on treatment, prevention, and testing. So, as far as we can tell at this point, we haven't seen anybody get a second infection. It's likely what happened is somebody was in the hospital, they were tested before discharge, it was either an improper swab, improper test, or they just weren't shedding as many viral particles. They come back a week later because they picked up a secondary infection like bronchitis or a cold. Suddenly they're pushing out more of those particles that are dead, but aren't actually infectious, and they're testing them and saying that they've got a positive result. So that's the most likely that we've come into. I don't know if in the future we're going to see people getting reinfected with it, the thing is, is that it is possible for you to get any virus a second time, even at the same strain, if you don't have a good antibody response. If your immune system doesn't create enough antibodies to protect you from the secondary infection, or the infection happening again, it can't happen again. So now let's get on to the not-so-great news. I know that everybody's seeing on the news, everybody's seeing lots of protesting, Lots of pushback, lots of people that want to get back to work. There are a lot of places around the United States that are going to be reopening. There's a lot of states that have taken out their stay-at-home orders. And it's going to continue in this direction as more people are saying that the economy can't be tanked anymore and can't be taxed, and they need to go back to work. Now, this is a hard one because I completely understand both sides. I understand that people need to get back to work, that people need to bring an income, but there's also the risk factor that they're putting everybody at. The people that aren't pushing for this aren't asking to get exposed. They're perfectly content with doing things the way that they are. They're able to stay at home. They figured things out for themselves. 
and they're going to be put at risk because there's going to be people gathering. Now, work is not as big of a thing. The thing that really concerns me is hearing about all these marches that people want to do, all these parties, all these get-togethers, because the second something opens, the mindset is that the virus is no longer a concern. People aren't going to look into the information. They aren't going to look into the data. They aren't going to look at projections. They're going to say, hey, everything's open. That means I can go out. I don't need to social distance anymore. I don't need to cover my cough. I don't need to wear a face mask. I don't need to use hand sanitizer because the virus is gone. The problem is, is it's not. The projections, at least for where I'm at in Arizona and for quite a bit more of the United States, is we're not even halfway through this at this point. A lot of the information and COVID Act is actually a good resource for this. It's a conglomeration of different data, different projections from other places where they put it together into an easy-to-read graph. It shows what our cases and our hospital beds are able to hold for different areas. And it also gives a projection of the current orders, which is mostly stay at home versus no restrictions whatsoever. And I will tell you that no restrictions whatsoever graph is terrifying. I don't even want to look at it because we would reach the hospital capacity in less than a week from opening for most places in the United States. If you flip through it, you look at different states. Different states have different time frames that they're expecting, and they've also got different disaster levels. But the thing is, is that if we go back and act like nothing happened, we're going to overwhelm the hospitals really quickly, and we're going to have a New York situation where we're pulling medical staff from other places. We're setting up morgues in areas that weren't meant for them. We're setting up medical tents outside of hospitals to treat patients. And that's really the thing that we want to avoid. Yes, people need to socialize. People need to get back to work. The economy is definitely taking a hit from this. But our main concern is controlling infection and controlling hospital admission rates, because that's the driving force here. If we don't have hospital beds for people, we don't have ventilators for people, those doctors are going to have to make the choice of who lives and dies. And that's not a choice that I think any doctor wants to make. So if you're in an area where they are reopening things, where they're trying to give the sense of normalcy, the best thing you can do is just continue to practice cleanliness. Social distancing, wearing face masks, washing your hands, maintaining distance from contacts, and also keeping an eye on, but also not being directly in contact with immunocompromised family members. You want to make sure that you're protecting people the best that you can. You don't want to spread this. It is highly contagious. It is highly infectious. And you got to do your part to make sure that other people aren't getting sick. So this is the part and part of the reason why I waited an entire week more than I normally would to record this podcast. COVID has an untold death toll. And I'm not talking about misprojections or a misdiagnosis from people dying from it. There's a lot of deaths that have happened because of this that are not from the virus. So we're seeing that there's a lot of people that aren't seeking medical care and they're letting things go that they shouldn't because they're scared. And that's understandable. If you're sick, if you have a heart condition, if you have really bad diabetes, really bad lung issues, then it could be scary to go to a hospital. The thing is, is all of the hospitals, at least in the area that I'm in, I can't speak for every hospital, but most hospitals actually have a separate ward for coronavirus patients. They're screening every person as they come to the hospital. They're separating them out from there. We've seen something like a 40% increase in non-hospitalized end stems. 
which is basically just a specific type of heart attack where you don't have an elevation in one of the heart wavelengths. There's been a lot of people who've been dying in their homes, and they don't know if it's because they had a stroke, because they went into a diabetic coma, because they went into respiratory distress on their own, because they didn't take their medications, any number of things. There's a lot of people that have lost contact with the family members that have been caring for them and checking on them because they don't want to infect them, and they're not taking care of themselves. I'm seeing it personally in the office. There's a lot of patients that would rather go without their blood pressure medication and put themselves at a risk of a stroke than come into a doctor's office and potentially expose themselves. I try to reassure everybody that we clean frequently. We maintain cleanliness. We've had positive cases. Nobody in the office has gotten sick from them. We're making sure that everything is changed out frequently. Everything's wiped down with appropriate cleaning. We separate sick patients from well patients. We're doing everything we can. We're offering telehealth appointments, which are a good option if you have a family member who can't do it on their own. Try to help them out from a distance. Try to assist them in some way. But just because there is a pandemic doesn't mean that you should stop taking your cholesterol medication, your diabetic medication, your heart medication, your seizure medication, any medication that you're on that could put your life at risk. Just because COVID's out there doesn't mean that it's okay for you to walk around with a blood sugar of 300 or 400 when you should be closer to 100. The other end of this untold death toll, and this is the part that really sucks, is suicide rates have gone up significantly. Now, a lot of people might say that people are giving up, and they might be. But the thing of it is, is if you have depression, if you are suicidal, you don't want to exist anyways. You don't want to get up and live your normal life on a good day. Depression, in its essence, is that you feel wrong even when everything around you is right. There's so many famous people, so many people with good, happy lives who have committed suicide, who had no reason to, because everything was going right for them from our perspective. So what's happening, these people that had no will to live before are suddenly forced with a complete and utter change in their lifestyle, in their jobs, in their family. They can't connect anymore, it seems. And they see the only option is suicide. Now, I expected to see this. When this first happened, I saw a potential for an increase in suicide rates if this was severe enough. Seeing the actual data is definitely more disheartening than expecting it. Now, what can we do at this point? As people, our job is to connect. Our requirement is to connect. And the people that are depressed like this don't want to connect. They want to limit interaction because they don't want anybody to stop them. If someone is truly suicidal, the last thing they want is for someone to step in and save them. So the best thing you can do is keep contact, text message, phone calls, letters, FaceTime, Zoom, whatever your poison is as far as those go. Humans are social creatures, and even people that don't think that they want someone around actually do want someone around. They need that reassurance, they need that person looking out for them saying, hey, something's wrong, let's talk about this. There's plenty of resources online. I'm not going to list all of them because you can Google them. It'll take you directly to their web pages. But there's plenty of therapy services that are happening via video conference, by telephone calls. 
There's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. There's a lot of resources out there where if you have someone that you care about going through this, you can reach out to. There's nothing more terrifying than not wanting to exist and then having your entire existence flipped around. So I can understand how from the outside, it'll be easy for someone to miss these warning signs, to not see that someone isn't keeping up with the things that they should be doing, especially when everybody's at home all the time. But really reach out. Really think if there's somebody that you care about who's mentioned that they're sad, who has depression, and check up on them. I wouldn't expect if we see more of this as the economy dwindles, money is a big factor for suicide. But outside of that, some people have lost their jobs, they've lost their houses, they've lost loved ones. It's really a sad time right now. That's where community comes in. I've said it throughout this entire thing. We need to be reaching out to each other. We need to be helping each other how we can. And I think that's important. Just because you're okay doesn't mean that everybody around you is okay. So continuing back to the disease itself, we have been seeing some interesting, slightly terrifying, different symptoms popping up throughout. And it really kind of shows us how little we actually know about this. I've said it before, and I think it's going to hold throughout this entire thing. The scariest thing about this virus is how little we know about it and how little we understand about it. There's been a lot of reports coming out with an increase in blood clots from patients with this. And we don't really understand why. Part of it could be that people are being confined to hospital beds longer because that's one way that these blood clots can happen, but it's seeming to happen in healthy people. The other thing that we've been starting to see is some increase in non-descript, very odd symptoms coming together with COVID. And the hard thing is this makes it harder for us to screen patients. When this first happened, we had a checklist. Have you had international travel? Do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Do you have shortness of breath? And then we found out it was GI involving. And then we found out that people are having body pain. And then we found out that people are having headaches. So at this point, we don't know a whole lot. All we can do is go off of what we do know. This goes back to the antibody testing where that's going to be very helpful for us to pinpoint when was this person last sick? Is it likely that this is when they had this and match up some of those symptoms so we have a clearer picture of what's going on? I know that there's a lot of places right now that have ramped up their testing. Arizona, where I'm at, has actually taken off requirements for healthcare workers and first responders. And I think that is a good thing. They should have done that sooner. We have a decent amount of testing materials plus other options for testing. The Abbott test, a lot of the labs have opened up for secondary testing. SonoraQuest and LabCorp are both now doing COVID antibody testing, as well as some in- independent institutions that are doing it associated with hospitals or universities. So I think we're now at the point where testing is going to be less of a concern. We're still very concerned about personal protective equipment and ventilators and hospital beds and hospital staff. So with this increase in testing, will we be able to reopen more? I hope so. I do really think it's going to be helpful for people to get back out and do things. But on the tail end of that, as soon as things do open up, that is not an invitation to go to parties, to go visit sick family members, 
to go internationally traveling, to go traveling across state lines, to go back to beaches, national parks, state parks, city parks. You still want to minimize contact with people. We have testing, but we don't have enough to test everybody. And the hard thing is, okay, well, maybe we do with the antibody testing, but not with the nasal swabs, not with lab capacity. We can't test everybody on the same day. If it's staggered out, then yes, we can, but we also can't support that many people that are currently sick with it, especially when we're already seeing that people aren't taking care of themselves, aren't taking their medications. We're going to overload the hospital system very quickly. So what happens when we overload the hospital system? Well, there's a couple options. If we have the ability to, we'll be setting up field hospitals like they were in New York. We're going to be converting places that weren't originally meant to be hospitals into hospital facilities in order to treat COVID patients while maintaining the ICU for severely sick patients, COVID or non-COVID related. When it comes to ventilators, there have been some places that have turned in some of their excessively bought ventilators because they didn't need as many of them. If things reopen, they might end up needing all those that they bought. So the important thing is, and the biggest takeaway from this week, is even when everything opens up, the virus is still out there. And you need to act like it's still out there. I know that I mentioned this in the last podcast, but I do want to continue to remind everybody to check your news sources. As we're getting further into this, there's a lot of conflicting information out there. And a lot of it is not well documented. If you can't find the source of an article, it's best to assume that that information is inaccurate. If someone can't provide information as to why they're saying something, chances are that person's information is inaccurate. Verify everything that you hear that has a significant impact on your life. If it's something that doesn't matter to you, you don't need to verify it, but don't spread it. If it's something that is very important to you, definitely verify it. The most important thing that we can do right now is to make sure that we are keeping the spreading of misinformation to a minimum. I know that there's a lot of agendas being pushed right now. Unfortunately, a lot of the politicians are using this as voting season rather than the polls. So make sure that even if it's somebody that you trust that's a political figure, I don't know why you would, but if you do, you verify the information that they give you. This is definitely a time where we need to listen to the World Health Organization, to the Center for Disease Control, to our state and local health departments, and to physicians that are actually dealing with this. If you spread misinformation to somebody, and they trust you, and they believe you, you're putting them at risk for no reason. So continue to verify. Continue to ask questions. There's a lot of questions we don't have answers to, but that doesn't mean that you can't ask them. Personally, if you have any questions for me, you can definitely send them over to the Twitter page that I infrequently check. It's at Layman Medicine, and I'll do my best to answer it, either in a podcast or a direct response, probably in a direct response, then later in a podcast. If it's something that I don't know, I'll see if I can find out. I definitely want to help. I definitely think that it is our duty as medical professionals to educate, to teach, to break down misinformation, and to help out. I know that there is a lot of misinformation that is being purposely pushed, 
and this is one time where I will tend to veer into the political spectrum for a moment, I know that everybody's seen these news stories about protesters saying that we need to reopen things, saying that they want a haircut, that they want to go to their prom, that they want to get their hair dyed, that their nails need to be done. Some of them are paid. And I want you to understand that not from a standpoint of who's paying them, because it doesn't matter. But there are certain people who have influence and who have money who are going to incite propaganda to undermine the best interests of the nation, of the world. And honestly, it's saddening. We have so many people who have died from this, so many people who have given their lives, given their time, given everything, that I feel like it's doing them a disservice. We have physicians in other countries who didn't have PPE but wanted to treat patients, and they died because of it. And then we have people protesting that they want to get a haircut. I feel like that's immature. I feel like that's wrong. I don't care if they're getting paid or not. But I do want you to understand that there are some of these where there is money exchange for this. Where there are people with political agendas being pushed through the general population, seeming like it is the general population's ideas. So once again, verify your information. Make sure that you're looking out not only for your best interest, but for the interest of others. If there was a way for us to reopen the economy tomorrow, I would be perfectly fine with that. But right now, I don't think it's safe for us to. Not just from a medical standpoint, but from the standpoint of a person who cares. I don't think it's worth putting this many lives at risk just so that people can go back to doing the frivolous things that they do every day. Now, there are some things that are necessary, and I do understand that people's lives and livelihoods are being put on hold. I do think the government should be stepping in with some more help for these people, not just for large businesses, but for smaller businesses. I do know that there has been a lot for this, but it hasn't made it all the way out. Will we reopen soon? I hope so. If we do everything right, we might be able to reopen by the end of this next month for most areas. It just depends on the responsibility and the personal perception of people taking it upon themselves to limit the spread. If you go and get your hair done, that is not as dangerous for everybody as if you go to a baby shower or a wedding or a big party and hug everybody. I do know that there are a lot of these smaller businesses that are going to do everything that they can to make sure that their clients and employees are safe. But I think that we need to take it one step at a time. I don't think that this is anything that should be rushed into especially when we're having a hard enough time getting a hand sanitizer and face masks in a medical office. I don't think there's enough equipment for everybody to have that. And it's that general protection that I feel like everybody needs. The education and protection are going to be the biggest things that we're lacking. So I know that that last bit went back into the more depressing side of things, so let's look at something good from this week. We've seen some promising test results from Esdevimir, which is a medication that they originally were using for SARS and MERS, that they decided they were going to give a try for coronavirus. The information is not an immediate cure. It's more of an assistance for the longevity of the person after the initial diagnosis. So what does that mean? It just means that you're not going to die as 
quickly or with the same percentage. So it gives a better long-term outlook. It doesn't cure it. It doesn't necessarily even shorten it, but it helps protect your body. The other good thing is, is that we are seeing more and more drug companies, pharmaceutical companies, lining up trying to look for a treatment for this, and also for a vaccination. Now, is a vaccine going to happen this round of it? Probably not. We've been doing some testing with vaccines, but vaccines are really, really hard. Every year we struggle and generally miss out by a large portion on the flu vaccine. We still get some protection from it, but it's not complete protection. So when you're talking about a virus that we really barely understand, making a vaccine for it is not an easy thing to do. The good thing is, is that we can now use the antibody testing to test and see if someone has created a good immune response to the vaccine, but we also need to be safe. At this point, most of the vaccines that we're going to be looking at that can be manufactured in the short term are going to be live viruses. They're going to be weakened live viruses, like I talked about previously, but they're still live viruses. So there is a risk for people who are immune compromised, and that's really the target that we should be hitting for vaccination. So will we see a vaccine? Probably not through this. If it returns next year, we probably have a vaccine that we can give to frontline workers, to elderly. I don't think it's going to be widespread enough that everybody can get it, but I do think that if this is something that we're going to have to do with on a yearly basis, we're going to get better at it. So one question that I've been hearing a lot on the internet and also from patients this week is about the different levels of infection that people are getting. We've got some people that get the infection and they don't even realize they have it. We've got some people that get it and it feels kind of like a mild cold. Other people get it and it's just like the flu. And then other people get it and they end up in the hospital. So part of this, at least from the information we have now, is based on immune response to the virus. We're seeing a large number of people that really shouldn't get as sick as they should getting severely sick from this. And one of the theories that have been going around for the last maybe two, three weeks is that this could be similar to the H1N1 swine flu, where people who are younger and healthier were having something called a cytokine storm. Now, what a cytokine storm is, it's a overreaction from your immune system. It creates a whole bunch of inflammatory cytokines that attack your healthy tissue. So we're seeing multi-system organ failure, we're seeing the lungs being affected more than they should be, we're seeing kidneys shutting down, things like that. And that's probably from a faulty immune response. We don't normally see this with a lot of viruses, but like I said, with the H1N1, this was an actual documented, very large portion of the people that were younger that died from this had cytokine storms. And it was just a overreaction of their immune system, attacking healthy cells. So there are a couple treatments coming out that are going to be a little bit riskier. What doctors are trying to do is they're trying to lower the immune response while still keeping the immune system up enough that the person can survive without a secondary infection. Because whenever you're in as severe as respiratory failure or you're really, really sick, there's a lot of other infections that tend to latch themselves on. Kind of like with the flu, we see a lot of secondary bronchitis, pneumonia, all sorts of nasty things hitting people with the flu. So that's something that is in the works currently with a couple different experimental treatments. The biggest thing is just that we're 
continuing to do palliative care and support for patients when they're sick, make sure that we're treating the symptoms, that we've got the proper warnings in place where if they do need to go to the hospital, that they'll be at the hospital. So at this point, we don't necessarily have enough information to determine why some people don't get sick and why some people do get sick. That's something that there is a lot of research going into, because if we can find out why some people are just carriers for it and asymptomatic, that could be helpful in the treatment of it. If it's something in their genetic makeup, if it's ancestry-based, if it's environmental, that's part of why we want to do the antibody testing so much so that we can see this person was never sick. Why are they different than the person that died from this? So now comes the point in this podcast where I'd like to do a too long didn't listen, where basically if you didn't feel like listening to the entire thing, you can get all the information condensed down. This also kind of helps as a review. So we're seeing an expansion in antibody testing. LabCorp, SonoraQuest, lots of private laboratories are actually doing antibody testing. We're seeing a lot of Walgreens locations opening up for drive through swabbing. Banner Hospital in Arizona has opened up for a lot of drive through testing as well. We're seeing an increase in capability and also supplies for testing, both antibody and by the nasal swab. The antibody testing is more useful for checking to see who had an infection, while the nasal swab checks for a current infection. We've been seeing that there hasn't been any good data to back up a reinfection, and that most of the people who have been diagnosed after they've been cleared have been from either faulty testing or from the virus hanging on for longer than we thought, and the test just being so accurate that it picks up the DNA from the virus, or RNA from the virus, after it is already cleared. We've seen a drastic increase in deaths not related to the coronavirus happening, because people aren't taking their medication, they're not taking care of themselves, and they're scared to go to the hospital. I want to reassure everybody that most hospitals in the United States, I can't speak for the entire world because I don't know the entire world, but in the United States are actually separating their sick patients from their COVID patients in order to make it safer for people if they have a stroke, a heart attack, a broken bone, a fall, a bad infection, something like that. I want to remind everybody, if you are on long-term medication, definitely check with your physician's office to see if they offer telehealth if you're running out of medication and you need to talk with your doctor about it. I also talked about the fact that if we do reopen the economy and reopen everything, we need to be slow, we need to be meticulous, we need to think about it. And as people, we need to take responsibility for our own sanitation and our own quarantine if necessary to maintain social distancing, to maintain cleaning, to maintain covering coughs, to make sure that we're not spreading things, to maintain our distance from large group settings, and also to be conscious of who around us is more susceptible to infection. We have seen some promise from Estivimir, which is a drug that was originally used for SARS and MERS, that they've decided to bring back out to try to treat COVID. The first study was just completed for it and is promising not necessarily for shortening the infection, but for maintaining long-term survivability. We've also talked about the fact that protesting is ridiculous. I don't really have anything else to say about that. And that the reason why some of these infections may be worse than others is due to a immune response from the person. We don't know why yet. So as always, there's a lot of things we don't know. But the good news is, is there's a lot more that we do know. So I hope everybody can stay safe. 
I hope everybody can stay healthy. Make sure that you check on your friends. Make sure that you're there for anybody if they are depressed. If you don't know where the resources are, just look them up. There's plenty of resources all around the internet. There's lots of counseling you can do over the phone, over the internet. And just treat each other like human beings. I think more than anything, this should be a reminder that we're all into this together. So until next week or the week after, I hope everybody's safe.